Bless each and every day. Uh, Lord, thank you for this beautiful church family that you've allowed us to be a part of and that you brought us into and that you have knit together um, through your Son, Jesus Christ, and through your Holy Spirit. Uh, Lord, thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you, Father, for this beautiful passage this morning. And Lord, please help me to be faithful in teaching and preaching your word this morning. Please keep me from saying anything that you don't want me to say. And Lord, please enable me to say the things that you do want me to share. We thank you, we love you, and we pray and ask all these things for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So like I said, church, good morning. What a wonderful pleasure it is to be here with you this morning. And uh, if I could title the sermon this morning, it would be Wine and a Wedding. Wine and a Wedding. Uh, so we do have a, a wedding coming up here not too long for, for John David and Tanisha, so that's pretty cool. Um, so very fitting for this time of the year. So before we go into the passage, though, I want to share a quick story and some statistics, because you all know I like my statistics. So there we go. The story goes like this. About 10 years ago, and that's kind of sad to actually think about, but Almost 10 years ago, give or take, uh, back when I was a lowly student at JSU, I had a professor there who was a very unique man. Very, very unique man. He was fun to talk to. I enjoyed getting to talk to him. Um, his classes were interesting, to be sure. Um, but when it came to theology, we kind of had a pretty radical difference of opinion on how to interpret Scripture. Of course, this professor um, was more well-known for his liberal beliefs. And one day, I don't even remember exactly how we got onto this passage, but we were talking about this passage in particular. And he told me that the reason that he believed that Jesus performed this miracle was to show us how to manipulate energy at the subatomic level. And he said that with absolute sincere belief and conviction. And I'm, I'm going, okay. Um, no, but okay. But, you know, I didn't argue with him, but um, he, needless to say, had some very different views. Now, you would expect someone who is more, more liberal, more secular, to have strange views like that. Because we kind of expect that from folks who are, in, who are more in the world, let's, let's just say. What's scary is when we start to see some very dangerous beliefs about the Lord Jesus from within the church. That's when it starts to get very, very scary. And that's what these statistics are, are supposed to say. Um, so according to the most recent results of the State of Theology survey conducted, conducted by Ligonier Ministries, it's usually conducted every two years. Last year was the more latest year for the research and for the polls, and um, they released the newest data November or December of last year. Uh, there's 35 true or false questions. Each question is designed to gauge the health of the evangelical church. So just to clarify in context all that. There are 3,011 respondents who responded to this, to this survey. And this question 
um, goes like this. It was true or false. True or false, Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. True or false, Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. Now, it should seem pretty clear and apparent, or at least I hope it should, that uh, we should say absolutely false to that. Absolutely not. I mean, he, is, he was, of course, an amazing teacher, but that was because he is God. He was and is and always will be the eternal Son of Man, the eternal Son of God. Well, here's where things get a little bit frightening. Out of the 3,011 respondents... 31% said they strongly agreed with that statement. 22% said they somewhat agreed. 11% said they were unsure. 9% said they somewhat disagreed. And 27% said they strongly disagreed. I won't let that sink in for a minute. This was a mix of supposedly evangelical church members, both men and women, who responded to the survey. So out of those 3,011 respondents, over 1,500, over 1,500 said in some way or another that they agreed true to that statement. That's kind of scary. That's actually not kind of scary. That is very, very scary. It's obvious that in most modern churches, not all, but most, it seems that there is a problem about seeing Christ rightly. And that's what this passage is supposed to correct us on. And it's a beautiful passage. So before we go directly into it and start talking about the three points that I want to draw from this pack, 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 sorry, passage, with the first being the context of the wedding, before we go there, let's remind ourselves of why the Gospel of John was written in the first place. It's always good to, to, to be reminded of why we have something. And we find that very clearly, by the way, very clearly, in John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31, in which the Lord through John says this, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but so that you may believe that Jesus is, is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. This entire gospel that we're working through was written for the express purpose of making sure that we believe rightly about Jesus and, and rightly have eternal life through Him alone. So, now that we know why the gospel of John was written, now that we know the, some of the problems within the modern church, Let's start talking about weddings, Jewish weddings. Now, back then in Jesus' day, Jewish weddings were a very significant event in Jewish culture. 
These weddings would usually last for about a, at least a week, sometimes even longer than a week at a time. Thank goodness that's not exactly how long they are today. Whew. Anyway, moving on from that. These weddings, like I said, would last for a long time. And because the ceremonies were so long, according to the MacArthur Bible Commentary, and because the water at that time was not always the cleanest to drink safely, they didn't have the local water board, they didn't have Brita filter pitchers or Brita filters for the sink, they didn't have bottled water, they didn't have any of that. So because the water was not always so clean, and because the ceremonies were long like they were, wine was often mixed with water to dilute the strength of the wine to about a third to a tenth of its original strength, give or take, and to sanitize the water because wine had that kind of cleansing effect for the water. So if they mixed the wine and water like that, they could drink it more safely and more freely and not to worry as much about like dysentery and other stuff that we just definitely don't want to have. Yeah, don't want to have that. Additionally, in these times and in, the, in those days, the groom and the host of the ceremony were responsible to make sure that there was an adequate supply of wine for all the guests for the entire length of the celebration. If there was a shortage of wine in the celebration, it would bring great shame to the groom, to his family, to the host of the ceremony. It'd be a very shameful thing for that to happen. And not only that, but it would even open up the groom himself to be sued by his new in-laws. So very glad that was not a problem at our wedding either. Thank you very much. Whew. So this was a very serious thing. When we, when we read about the wine running out, it's, it's, it's serious. Because they, they didn't have a Publix or a Walmart they could run down to and get more wine at. No. If you ran out, you ran out, and it was a big problem. So now that we understand the context of the wedding, that was point one, let's go into the problem of the wedding, the wedding problem. Verses three through five. When the, when the wine ran out, Mary knew exactly who could help in this situation. She knew that only Jesus could fix this problem. We see on a much more important scale for us today, that the greatest problem we have as humanity today is not a lack of wine. I think we have that in other drinks and surplus today. The problem that we have, the true greatest problem, is that we need salvation and forgiveness for our sins prior to being saved by Christ. That's the problem. And just like in this situation to where when the wine ran out, there was no hope for fixing this problem except for Jesus. There's none. There was no other way to fix it. Like I said, no Publix, no Walmart. They didn't have cars. Not even close. It would take days to travel from even to, to even a nearby city, much less to actually get more wine and then have it brought in. It would be impossible. Everything would be done by that point. So the only solution was Christ. And how beautifully providential that the only solution for our sin problem is Christ. No other. 
There's no other name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved except Jesus. Although many in this world may look to a host of various solutions to fix their life and their soul, and people often try to, not that, the, not that they are real solutions, but they do try. There is only one true Savior, and that's Jesus Christ. He said very clearly in John 14, 6-7, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He was very clear on that. We have, as Christians, a very exclusive scriptural belief. And it was made that way by our Lord and Savior, not by us. Another thing that's interesting in this passage is uh, it seems like on a surface level reading that Jesus was being rude to his mama when he said, woman, what does this have to do with me? You know, that's, that's the way we kind of almost read it ourselves today. Uh, you know, normally, and I knew better, that I would never go to my mom and say, woman, what do you want? Uh, if I did that, judgment day would already be there for me. Yeah, yeah, I would have a taste of judgment day on that day. But in fact, though, Jesus is not being rude to his mother. It's not, it's not actually intended to be interpreted the way we would normally interpret it today. This passage actually echoes its use in John 19, 26, when Jesus is handing the care of his mother, Jesus is on the cross, he's suffering for his people, including for his mother too. He's bearing the, the complete, perfectly just wrath of the Father for our sins on himself. And yet, while he's up there, he's also thinking about taking care of his mother. And in that verse, he hands the care of his mother to John. And he says, woman, behold your son. Son, behold, behold your mother. So actually, the language echoes that passage. So he's not actually being rude. He's, he's being respectful to her. But at the same time, he's... he's He's creating this separation and he's trying to teach her and show her, Mom, my hour has not yet come. My mission, his, his hour, his mission, which refers to his, his death, his resurrection, his glorification, his ascension, um, that time had not yet come. And he was teaching her, Mom, there, there, there's a... There's a reason why I'm here. And it's not to just go around fixing earthly problems. Like a, like a wine at a wedding. We need to understand that in, in the same way, that even though we can boldly approach the throne of grace to receive mercy and find grace to help at the time of need because of our great high priest, Jesus Christ, we also need to remember to approach him with reverence with honor, realizing how blessed we are in Him and how, how we need Him. We should approach Him in respect, 
as we see in 1 Samuel 12, 24, and Hebrews 12, 28 through 29. However, and we don't know exactly why the Lord Jesus chose to answer his mother's request. It doesn't specifically say. But we do know a couple things about our Lord Jesus. He was the one who gave his law to the people in in the Ten Commandments, with one of those commandments being, you shall honor your father and your mother. He gave that law. He also said that he did not come to abolish the law or the prophets, but to fulfill them in Matthew 5.17. So from seeing from other passages of Scripture, we can... We can see a glimpse of maybe why he chose to respond this way at this particular time. Even though his ministry, his earthly ministry had just started, he was responding possibly in this way. Because by honoring his mother, he was ultimately honoring his heavenly father. In the very word that he gave to his people. Because he does everything perfectly and he never sinned. If Jesus had disrespected his mother, that would have been a sin. That would have been a serious problem. Because our Savior needed to be sinless. Had to be sinless. And he was. Perfectly innocent in every way. So he did choose to respond. Because he is the only solution. And that's the final part of this, of this sermon this morning. Is the wedding solution verses 6 through 12. Once again, according to the MacArthur Bible Commentary, the sticks, or not sticks, six stone water jars present there, which were used for the Jewish ritual of purification, like, like it talks about in this passage, were made of stone due to their ability to resist bacteria growth in them compared to earthenware jars. They were a lot cleaner. A lot more sanitary. And they were pretty heavy. Stone, water, jar, holding 20 to 30 gallons each. That's a pretty heavy jar. We could also see this as being representative of the Old Testament system of purification with the presence of Jesus heralding the new system of the Holy Spirit applying the perfect work of Christ to his people. Foreshadowing. Because as we see in the Old Testament, everything that we see, all the sacrificial systems, the ceremonies, the celebrations, everything, ultimately points towards Christ. He's the perfect, ultimate fulfillment of everything we see set up by the Lord in the Old Testament. And reading verses 7 through 8, just reading this passage this week again, I noticed something that was very, very interesting. Something that I can't say I've noticed before, but this week it stood out. If we read verses 7 through 8, we can almost see echoes or hear echoes of the creation account. Jesus commanded the servants to fill the water jars with with water, and they did. And he commanded them to dip water out of the jars and take it to the master of the feast. And they did. 
The passage does not imply any hesitation on the part of the servants to obey Christ. Rather, they did exactly what he told them to do. Jesus spoke at creation, and the universe did exactly what it was told. Now, if we combine the passage of John 1, 1 through 5, talking about the preeminence, the, the preexistence, the, the centrality of Christ, the equality of Christ with the Father, particularly at creation, um, in, in that passage, and if we combine it with this passage, we can clearly see that the God present at this wedding was the same God present and active at the creation of the universe. The same God present at this wedding was, is the exact same one who was present and active and spoke all things into existence at the very beginning of the universe. He's the reason why we're here. He's the reason why we exist. He's the reason why we have hope that Romans 5 says does not disappoint. And as we know, water is not exactly the same thing as wine. They're both fluids, true, but that's about where the similarities end. Uh, one will, will definitely make you more, um, more full, and one will definitely make someone more inebriated the more they drink of it. And just as only... God could create the universe and the world and us. Only God could turn water into wine. And not only did Jesus turn this water into wine, he turned it into the best wine anyone could ever drink. And it was not, as my professor at JSU once said, this was not done to show us how to manipulate energy at the subatomic level. Last time I've checked... Nobody, except for Jesus, has been able to turn water into wine. I can't. You can get the, the squirty stuff you can put in water and give it a different flavor, but it doesn't change the water. The water is still water, it just has flavoring in it. You can't change water into wine except unless the Lord does it. And he did do it. Instead of showing us about changing the chem chemical composition, I believe this passage foreshadows and teaches what happens with us when we are saved by Christ. Before we are saved, we're worse than basic like water. Water's water, unless it's really dirty and then it's polluted. We're actually more like the really dirty polluted water. Not fit for anybody to drink. I wouldn't even want to go near it. Wouldn't even want to swim in it. But when the Lord got a hold of us, and when he saved us, he made us completely new in himself, like this beautiful wine that he made at this wedding, that only he could do, and only he could save his people. When Christ saves us, we are made alive in Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 5 says that. We are a new creation in Him, with our old self gone, and new godly desires planted into our heart through the Holy Spirit. 
We see that in 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 18. We are also, as Matthew 9, 17 refers to, we are the new wineskins with new wine in them. Because that's what the Lord's done for us. He's made us new. We're not the same as we used to be as believers. And that's, that's a miracle. Because Scripture says that before we were saved, we were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked. Last time I checked, folks who are, who are dead can't really help themselves, can't really do anything. They can't save themselves. Only the Lord can do that. And what a wonderful and beautiful gift that is. And just as we talked about at the beginning of the sermon, we now come to the very reason that Jesus worked this, want, or worked this sign at the wedding. In verse 11, it says that Jesus manifested his glory in this miraculous sign and that, the, that his disciples believed in him. He manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. That was, that was the reason. Contrary to, to my JSU professor, this is the very reason why he did what he did. So that his own people would believe in him and would believe rightly in him. And that by believing they would have life in his name. Just like the end of John, John chapter 20 says. The question now is, are we going to believe in Christ as his disciples believed in him and have life in his name through believing in him and trusting in his perfect life and his perfect work done for us to save us from our sins? Are we going to do that? Um, you know, we've seen in this sermon the, the context of the wedding. We've seen the problem and we've seen the solution. The problem ultimately is our sins. And the solution, the one and only solution, is Christ Jesus. And I'm very, very thankful that just as he changed that water into wine at the wedding, he also changed us and made us into something totally different. He didn't have to. He chose to. And I'm thankful they did. And hopefully, um, we can lovingly but firmly and unashamedly share this truth with others and do the best we can to combat the false belief about Jesus that seems to be so very apparent in many modern churches today, at least according to these statistics here. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your grace and your love and your mercy. Thank you, Father, for giving us your word. Thank you for turning the water into wine at this wedding, but Lord, thank you for the, the echoes and the foreshadowing of what that actually implied. Thank you that, Lord, you, you, have, you have solved the problem for us. Lord, we, we, we had the problem of sin. We had rebelled against you. We had sinned against you. And, we didn't even, and before we got saved, we didn't even want to have anything to do with you. But Lord, you called us to yourself. You called us out of darkness and into the marvelous light and beautiful kingdom of your son, Jesus Christ.
Thank you for doing that for us, spiritual traitors who didn't deserve it. Thank you for your love and your care for us as your people. Thank you for your word. Please help us to glorify you in all that we do, Father, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you.